Good afternoon and welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community. Your host is Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. This hour is designed to inspire, inform, and to help you live better with cancer. Now, here's your host, Kim Tibaldo. Welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer, an internet radio show that focuses on informing and inspiring people to live well with cancer. I'm Kim Tibaldo, CEO of the Cancer Support Community. The Wellness Community and Gildas Club have united to become the Cancer Support Community, one of the largest providers of cancer support in the United States and around the world. Our services are offered at more than 100 locations worldwide and online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. For people facing a cancer diagnosis, the path to completing cancer treatment can be long and difficult. The goal, of course, is to eliminate the cancer and get back to normal. However, for patients with advanced or stage four cancer, this goal may no longer be feasible. Patients face many tough decisions throughout the course of treatment, but one of the toughest decisions is deciding when it's time to stop treatment. In part one of this two-part series on patient decision-making, we're discussing making decisions about end-of-life care and the importance of patient-provider communication. We're happy to welcome back today's guest, Charlie Prather, to our show. Charlie has been one of the Cancer Support Community's amazing Cancer Support Community helpline counselors for more than five years. Charlie received her Master's of Social Work with an emphasis on health and began her career as a hospice and palliative care social worker more than 20 years ago. Prior to working with our helpline, Charlie was the program director at our affiliate Cancer Support Community Greater St. Louis. In her private practice, Charlie utilizes mindfulness practices for coping, as well as acceptance and commitment to therapy to assist those facing decisions when diagnosed with cancer and other life-threatening illnesses. She also teaches adaptive and trauma-focused yoga in her community. Charlie herself is a two-time cancer survivor. Welcome back to the show, Charlie. Hi, Kim. Good to Great be with to be you. Here. Let's get started. Great. Thank you. Charlie, I know this can be a difficult and, 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 and sensitive topic, but it really is such an important one. You know, let's start by talking about you and your role uh, as it relates to terminally ill patients. Can you tell us about your role with the Cancer Support Community's Cancer Support Helpline? Definitely. The, the role of the Cancer Helpline Counselors is, is to assist callers with not only finding local and national resources, but a really big part of our job is that emotional support. Uh, when callers call, they may be facing the end of their lives or thinking about ending their treatment. The hope is that they'll feel less alone if they call the helpline and maybe even gain some tools to communicate their thoughts a little easier. Yeah, and I just want to... Uh emphasize for our listeners, Charlie, that uh, the helpline certainly is for anybody at any stage of their cancer diagnosis. It can be somebody who's, who's, you know, just been diagnosed, somebody at an early stage of cancer. It can be family members, loved ones, but it can also be for somebody who is perhaps at a later stage of illness or maybe making some of these, uh, you know, some of these difficult decisions. Um, So anybody with any kind of cancer at any stage of illness can certainly give us a call uh, on the helpline. Charlie, yourself, uh, you know, as a two-time cancer survivor, how does your perspective influence how you help other patients? Obviously, it's been personal to you. It sure has. <laughs> I've been on. Mm-hmm. I, I share, you know, when it's appropriate and it feels yeah. like a like it's a good uh, segue. I, I will often share that I'm a survivor and that I've been a caregiver. And um, 
and uh, both roles are are very very difficult. You know, some of these callers, they may call us because they don't feel like they're really being heard, or that people don't don't understand them. They feel like they're speaking a foreign language, uh, or they don't know anyone who's ever had cancer. Yeah, yeah, certainly. And and Charlie, would you would you like to share a minute about your story today, your own cancer story? Oh, sure. I, I was 27 the first time, and I didn't know anything. <laughs> and mm. sometimes I think that's easier. And the second time, I knew quite a bit, so I was a, a little bit better advocate for myself. Uh, but I, I, I can say that when people call, if it's appropriate and I share that, many times they'll say, how long ago? And when I say 18 years, you hear this sigh of relief because my mm. first cancer was pretty advanced. And um, it's 18 years. I, oh wow! You know, it, it's it's you know it's a it's a something that um, is very uh, something they may not have even heard of. That they hear cancer, they think they're going to die immediately. Especially the people who call, who are very first diagnosed. They just found out today. They just found out an hour ago. They hear cancer. They immediately think that's it. Mm-hmm. So, Charlie, how often do you and your fellow helpline counselors get calls from someone maybe facing, you know, a terminal cancer, and and what are what are some of their most common concerns? Well, more often than you might expect, we get those calls, and the mm-hmm. ages vary, Kim, uh, from very young adults to those uh, who might be living in a nursing home in their eighties. Uh, for the younger caller, their concerns have a lot to do with feeling completely alone on an island. Uh, how to commute their needs to their parents, um, or how to talk to their children. And for older callers, one of the things I hear a lot is that their adult children don't agree with their decision, Mm. and they don't feel heard anymore, and they need a voice, and they need to know how to communicate with their adult children. What You know, this is about me. This is about what I want, not about what you want or need. Mm-hmm. Wow, so so challenging, and I know we're gonna we're gonna dig into that a little bit more, Charlie, about that uh, you know the communication um, you know with the family. But uh, but but how do you help to address the, the you know the patients' concerns? Um, you know, maybe maybe break it down for us a little bit, Charlie. Talk oh, sure. us through. You know, give us an example of a, of a caller. Maybe give us give us that younger caller and give us that older caller. They call you. If, you know, maybe maybe give us an example of what their concerns are and maybe what the conversation is like. Sure. The, the very first thing we are is present. Uh, just mm-hmm. listen. Uh, let them talk. Be, meet them where they are. Um, a lot of times, uh, you know, when a caregiver calls, they, they can't really meet the needs um, of the emotions of the patient. Um, so we, we really try to validate patients and caregivers, what they're feeling. We've got that ability to be really objective. Uh, I used to get a call from a very young man in his early 20s, um, uh, and it was always on the same evening that I work. And he'd been given a cell phone by his oncology social worker, and his hospice team was, was paying for that. And he just needed someone to be present with him and say, yeah, this really stinks. And not, oh, it'll be better. It's, it's going to get better. No, he, he needed the other person to say, this is, this is lousy. Uh, this is a lousy hand. And, and tell me what's 
on your mind today? How, how can I help you right now this evening? And many times it's just, let me vent. Let, let me tell you what happened today with this one or that one. With older callers, uh, one of the things I hear more, more than not is that need, desire to stop treatment. And I know we'll talk about that later, but how do mm. I find the words to ask my doctor if I can stop, because many times these are people in their 70s and 80s and the doctor knows everything, um, so they're not used to asking questions. And uh, Or how do I break it to my kids? I, I had a, a client once, I walked into the hospital room and the, the family stopped me before I pulled the curtain and they said, turn your hospice badge around, turn it around, he doesn't know he's dying. And mm-hmm. I walked in and I sat down and I held his hand and I said, hey, how, how are you today? My name's Charlie, and that's all I said. And he said, you got to help me. My kids don't know I'm dying. <laughs> Real disconnect. Mm-hmm. Most definitely. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And, and, uh, and Charlie, is it, is it sometimes are folks calling because they don't have anybody else to talk to, or is it sometimes folks are calling because they definitely have people around them, but as you're suggesting – the folks that maybe they just don't understand what's happening or, you know, they just need a, an outside separate objective voice who's maybe not part of the family or not connected to really kind of voice some of these concerns and maybe find the words or language to discuss it with those closest to them? That's exactly what we do. I call it scripting. It's therapeutic scripting. Uh, many times we will just sort of run through the scenario. So, okay, tell me what happened that that really bugged you about that conversation, and let's talk about how we can reframe that and how you can go about talking about that the next time. Um, especially if people call and they're highly, highly emotional at the beginning of the call, one of the things that the, the call center counselors, what we like to do is try to, to bring the octave level down just a little bit so that by the end of the call, they're calmer, and most people feel more empowered by the end of that call. They're empowered to take some action, and they've been validated that the concerns that they have or the feelings that they have are very real. And, and guess what? You're not the first person who's called the helpline with that very same issue. So in a sense, they're not alone. You got it. And, and we yeah. say that a lot on the call line. You don't have to go through this alone. I want to make sure you've got our number written down and you call us back when you need to because you are not alone in this. And a lot of people haven't heard that. Um, we've, we've had a lot of phone calls from people. The first words out of their mouth is, I don't have anybody. I don't mm. have anybody to talk to. Mm. Mm. And, now, and now we get them connected to that, to somebody to talk to. Whether it's us a mentoring organization, how to access their oncology social worker or their patient navigator, really trying to help them find those tools so that they are supported and they're not all by themselves. Yeah. And, and is it the same, Charlie, um, uh, on, the, uh, on the flip side? You know, we, we're, we're getting up to our break here. We've got a couple minutes to our first break. But do you sometimes have the caregiver calling also looking for the words about how to talk to the patient or the loved one. Again, maybe they feel like the patient isn't, isn't hearing the doctor or hearing the facts or maybe understanding the diagnosis or maybe some of the harsh realities of what's going on. Oh, yes, a very high rate of caregivers call, mm. very high rate. I used to, when I was a hospice social worker, I used to, to do my own little hand 
drafted pie chart of how much time I spent with caregivers over patients. So those conversations, uh, just as they were when I worked in the field in oncology and in hospice care, are uh, very times very challenging. Caregivers call the helpline, sometimes completely exhausted or angry or confused. Um, I try to remind them that anger is the bodyguard of sad. And uh, when you're faced with the loss or the the non-communication of somebody that you love, you feel really powerless on top of exhaustion. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We've got a lot to talk about with our guest, Charlie Prather-Levinson. Uh, Charlie has been with the cancer support community, working uh, in in our center in St. Louis, working uh, as a helpline counselor. She has uh, uh, an amazing uh, background working with patients, with particular emphasis on uh, end-of-life care and end-of-life uh, uh, decision-making. We are going to cover a, a, a wide range of topics. These can be really difficult conversations, difficult things to talk about, you know, whether you are the patient, whether you are the family member, uh, uh, you know, whether you are the provider and the physician, so many voices in this and so many folks who really care, uh, you know, about what's happening. We're going to take a quick break here uh, on Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Lots to discuss with Charlie Prather. Don't go away. We will be right back. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Cancer Support Community is proud to be a partner of Magnolia Meals at Home, a new pilot program that aims to help patients by providing nourishing meals to households affected by breast cancer so loved ones can spend more quality time together. This program is currently available in and around two pilot cities, Andover, Massachusetts, and Woodcliffe Lake, New Jersey. Participants will receive one delivery of meals every month for up to six months when enrolled in the program. Each delivery includes up to seven meals designed to help meet the nutritional needs of people living with breast cancer and 10 meals for family members. This novel program is brought to you by the AZI Women's Oncology Program, Magnolia. Cancer Care the Cancer Support Community, and Meals on Wheels Association of America. To find out if you or loved ones are eligible, visit online at www.magnoliamealsathome.com or call 617-733-5848. People living with breast cancer often find it difficult to ask for help, and many of the people in their lives want to help but don't know how. During National Breast Cancer Awareness Month, Cancer Support Community is proud to support Meal Trains sponsored by Magnolia, which utilizes Mealtrain.com, a free shared online calendar to streamline the process of giving and receiving meals for families coping with breast cancer. Help us reach our goal of 1,000 new breast cancer-specific meal trains this October. To learn more, visit Mealtrain.com MMT and enter the code MAGNOLIAB or visit us at cancersupportcommunity.org. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. 
Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I'm your host, Kim Timaldo. Today's show is sponsored by Bristol-Myers Squibb. We are joined by Charlie Prather-Levinson, a social worker and cancer support helpline counselor. We're talking today about treatment decision-making among patients with advanced or terminal cancer. Charlie, let's start off this segment by talking about stage four or advanced uh, stage cancers. What treatments are available and when do these treatments to begin to sort of shift focus on quality of life versus uh, quantity of life and and you know when, when do treatments stop I mean if somebody's diagnosed with a with a stage four or advanced cancer should they be looking at you know treatment options are there treatments uh, you know available I'm sure these there's a delicate balance I'm sure it varies by by cancer but you know give us some thoughts about that yeah, you know, um, chemotherapy, radiation, e- even surgery can be used to shrink tumors that might be causing pain and other problems. So when patients enter palliative care, uh, quality of life generally improves, and um, treatment only stops when the medical team feels it's no longer beneficial to that patient or when the patient says, you know what, enough is enough, I, I don't wish to do this anymore, and that is an incredibly individual decision that's based on um, multiple, multiple factors. But let's be clear, the treatment is, at this point, the treatment is not going to cure the cancer. That's correct. It's, it's considered um, something to uh, lessen pain and, and improve quality of life at that point. Okay, so let's get into, Charlie, some of the terminology. So I know there's a, I know it's not a new term, but I think in many ways in the medical profession or maybe for, for patients or others, this term palliative care. Mm-hmm. Now, I think a lot of folks are familiar with the term hospice care, but maybe not so much the term palliative care. Tell us the difference between palliative care and, and, and hospice care and how we think about the two. Well, comfort and support are the guideposts of hospice and palliative care. The palliative care is generally offered earlier in the process of of someone's disease so that the person can still be treated uh, for their cancer. So if a person's treatment isn't controlling the disease any longer and the medical team feels they have six months or less to live if the disease moves along in a textbook-type fashion, they, they may just start to discuss hospice care. The objective of hospice care, of course, is comfort and, and quality of life, not, not quantity of life. And, and you're, you're correct in that palliative care, we didn't hear that term much 20-something years ago when I started, mm-hmm. and now it's really becoming pretty routine. Most hospitals even have palliative care doctors. That's all they do. And so when uh, an oncologist uh, asks for a palliative care consult, that's usually a good indication uh, that they need to to start looking at other options for comfort for people. Mm-hmm. So it's really, it's really about symptom management, and these palliative care doctors are really, really experts in, in, in helping a patient manage their symptoms. They are experts, and there's a team with them. So there are mm-hmm. nurses, spiritual care coordinators, social workers, so you have a whole team behind you. So that really gives you uh, a more of a, a team approach that's a little bit more individualized. And so if, if, they, if, if they're calling in palliative care, 
should the patient think that they are terminal or getting to end of life? I'm, I'm unsure. I, I have had patients who, when they hear palliative, they're a little more hopeful than when yeah. they go right into hospice. And I, I know that when I worked in the medical model exclusively many times, if, if we knew that patient really well, we knew that family really well, and maybe even culturally, we knew that hospice was not the right choice for them, that's mm-hmm. where we would start. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and Charlie, I, I've, I've read recently that, um, that the amount of time the average patient spends in hospice versus the amount of time a patient would qualify to spend in hospice. When I say qualify, I mean, let's say what Medicare would pay for, right, or what their insurance pay for. There's a huge gap that patients think that hospice means that that person's going to die within days, but that they could actually be spending a much longer period of time in hospice and have that, as you say, comfort and support for a much longer period of time. Is that correct? It is. It's about uh, a few days. Um, and and it, it's probably one of the most heartbreaking things I've ever known. I've experienced it personally. I'm, I'm considered an you know an end of life uh, quote unquote, and I say this loosely, expert uh, mm-hmm. here where I, I practice uh, in the Midwest. And my own father was only on hospice for four days. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I hear that. I hear that a lot because it really does imply death, right? It really does imply death. It does, and, and truly, having been working in, in the end-of-life field for over 20 years, it, it shouldn't be. It's life. It is yeah. many times extending life because when people come on to hospice care, they're actually more comfortable, and uh, they, they have a, a longer life. And that's, uh, I've seen that happen many times, and I remember charting once and kind of chuckling after I charted. I went to the patient's home, and I had to chart... Uh, a patient mowing lawn, <laughs> unable to speak with social worker today, interfaced with uh, with daughter. <laughs> <laughs> I love that entry. <laughs> so, so Charlie, tell us. I know that many people establish goals that they hope to accomplish as a you know as a result of their treatment. And I also know sometimes there's a real disconnect between the goals of, you know, the conversation between the patient and the doctor are about the goals of treatment. Um, and patients sometimes don't understand what the goal of treatment is. Sometimes patients think that the goal is a cure when that is, you know, not not necessarily the case. But how do goals change when someone has terminal cancer? And, and, and what are some of the more common goals as they sort of relate to end of life? You know, many callers to the helpline, they don't even realize that they have goals mm-hmm. at, uh, at, at this point at this particular time until they really start mm-hmm. processing their feelings that are related to the news that they just got, that, the, that, that there's nothing more that they can do and that they are indeed terminal. And that's where I, I'm so grateful that the call center counselors are highly, highly trained with a lot of years of experience um, to, to facilitate these conversations in a very sensitive manner. So many goals include making certain that their medical team and the people that they love the most actually know what it is they want if they mm-hmm. can no longer speak for themselves um, or know what it is they want right now, today, in this moment. And some of those tools, you know, our Open to Options uh, program is perfect for uh, facilitating that discussion and teaching people how to start that discussion with their doctor and their loved ones. 
Talk about that program, Charlie, the Open to Options program. Our Open to Option program, we utilize it often on the helpline and in our affiliates and our hospital partnerships across the country. Uh, It involves assisting patients in coming up with a question list for their medical team so they can make a really true informed decision about their health care. And in this case, maybe when to stop treatment. Um, It can also be a really nice bridge when they have that list of questions uh, to have a loved one go with them to the doctor, and that loved one hears it in real time, and that could spark more discussion than when they get home. Mm-hmm, we also, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, the five, the five wishes form is another thing that I really uh, liked utilizing when I was in a hospital setting. And it's, it's an advanced directive, but it not only addresses the physical wishes of those, like do not resuscitate orders, but things like do mm-hmm. I want to be home? How much medication do I want? Who, who would I like to be there? And um, in one case, I had a, a woman who, who wrote pretty specifically who she didn't want to be around. <laughs> <laughs> well, that gets tricky for those who are left behind, <laughs> I guess, huh? Um, so, just so, just talk, to, just touch, just for a minute about um, about advanced directive, Charlie. For those of our listeners who maybe don't know what that is or what that means, what are, and you when you talk about you know a patient making sure that their wishes are known if they're not able to do that. Very important, and and anytime you go into the hospital, you're usually asked to fill out an advance directive or a new one if if you've been hospitalized a lot like I have. Uh, It seems like they're always pushing that in front of me, and I'm always pulling out my fancy five wishes form. Um, But they're really, um, they speak for you when you can't speak for yourself, or if someone's trying to take over your health care. And that's what that's what people that love you do. It happens. I encourage people to use um, these advanced directives as a bridge if they can't start the conversation about their own circumstances. Um, maybe using something that happened in the news. You know, someone someone dies that was very high profile in the news. They can use that as a bridge and then say, well, hey, you know, I, I, the social worker gave me this five wishes form. I was hoping maybe we could go over it and talk about it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And this is maybe a conversation that folks should have before somebody gets sick. I encourage everyone to do it. My poor children at the age of 18 had to fill one out because their mother was a hospice social worker. <laughs> and uh, I had been faced with my own mortality twice. And so in my family, the conversations were, were normalized and not feared. Um, so the earlier you can have those discussions, I have many times printed off five wishes forms when I have a family meeting, a family consult, and I've passed them out to everyone and asked everyone to fill them out so that the person who's really, really ill doesn't feel singled out. And that's worked out really well, actually. Mm. It's a, it's a great, uh, a great and important conversation for families to have, uh, uh, uh for sure, um, we are talking today with Charlie Prather. Charlie uh, has been one of our cancer support communities, amazing cancer support helpline counselors for more than five years. And uh, she has been with our 
organization for a number of years. She's a um, began her career as a hospice and palliative care social worker and um, has an incredible experience and a particular expertise in these end-of-life issues. We've got a lot more to discuss with Charlie on end-of-life uh, decision-making. These are important topics. We can't shy away from them. Don't go away. We're going to have more with Charlie after the break. We'll be right back. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. The Cancer Support Community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, the Cancer Support Community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-9355 or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community, a global network of education and hope. Cancer, it's a lonely word. Terms I don't understand, choices I never thought I'd have to make. But there is hope and help. Support from cancer survivors. Links to research and clinical trials. Help with finances and access to care. All behind you at Breakaway from Cancer. Created by Amgen to empower cancer patients. The cancer support community is proud to be a partner of Breakaway from Cancer. Cancer, it's a lonely word. Terms I don't understand. Choices I never thought I'd have to make. But there is hope and help. Support from cancer survivors. Links to research and clinical trials. Help with finances and access to care. All behind you at Breakaway from Cancer. Created by Amgen to empower cancer patients. The cancer support community is proud to be a partner of Breakaway from Cancer. Step into a healthier you. Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. We're back with Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Today's show is sponsored by Bristol-Myers Squibb. We're joined by Charlie Prather, a social worker and cancer support community helpline counselor. In this segment, we're going to shift our focus to talking about the importance of effective patient provider communication when focusing on end-of-life care. Uh, Charlie, in situations like this, it can be hard to find the right words to comfort someone. What, What do you say? to someone who is dying of cancer? Listen. Uh, listen to find out where they are so that you can assess where to meet them. That's the best advice I can give anyone. Um, I, I don't always have pearls. Um, I, and I tell people that. I, I don't have pearls, but I'm here. 
and you're not alone. Yeah. Um, the majority of callers just appreciate having somebody they can be honest with um, mm. and talk about their fears. I, one of the most important things I learned 20 years ago was to ask a question, what scares you the most? It's mm. a hugely therapeutic moment. What scares you the most? It's a great way to start a difficult conversation when people might be a little bit all over the place. They don't really know why they're calling. Um, so, so really being able to ask that question and just be present with, with where they are. Just, just meet them where they are. What are some of the answers that people have given you to that question? Mm, the, I, I think the answer I hear the most is, will my family be okay? Mm. And I, I don't want to die in pain. Those, mm. those are the two. They're, they're worried about other people, uh, but they're really afraid of being in pain. Mm. And and on the family on the family issue, Charlie. So, are there specific tips? Are there pieces of advice that you give them mm. about the about the family piece? Mm-hmm. I do. When it when it's a family. When it, when a family is fractured uh, due to uh, the loved one dying and, and maybe everyone isn't on the same page or people have very different ideas on how, how that's really supposed to happen, um, the validation of the patient and the caregiver, whomever calls, and believe me, I've had, I've had radio calls where I had um, a, a woman call and she said, I've got my husband on the other end of the phone. He's driving me crazy. He wants to stop treatment and I'm not having it. And then he's on the mm-hmm. phone saying, well, she doesn't understand that I've had enough of this and I'm 84 and I should be able to just hang out at, hang out at our, our second home. And those calls are very challenging, but they, um, if facilitated appropriately, and they usually are, um, we can get people to a, a better place by simply validating the concerns of each party. And caregivers and patients, sometimes they have the very same concerns, uh, but they can't hear each other unless a third party um, asks them to listen to the other person. They haven't really thought about that. Yeah, yeah. So, Charlie, how, how does somebody how does somebody know when it's time for them to stop treatment? I mean, do you do you feel like a patient knows? They just know. Do you think they need validation from their doctor? Do they need validation from a loved one? Do you know? It, does it vary person by person? It does. It's it's very and it's, it's a very individual decision. When a, when a person feels like they aren't living anymore mm-hmm. because all they do is drive to treatment or maybe they've had to go really far away from home and they miss their home and they miss their kids or they miss their grandkids or they miss their dog or going out for coffee um, or they, they feel their quality of life is so poor because their symptoms can no longer be managed, then that's when those discussions need to happen with our doctors and our, and our loved ones. So talk about, talk about that conversation with the doctor, because I know sometimes that can be difficult for the doctors too, right? Doctors, mm-hmm. doctors don't go to medical school 
to help people die, right? Doctors go to medical school to treat people. They go to medical school to help people live, to help people get better. And I know sometimes it can be the doctor who can be hard to convince of this conversation. (laughs) And I, I also think that they're in medical school not trained particularly well for these moments and these conversations. Talk a little bit about that. Well, at the risk of um, offending my cardiologist brother-in-law, <laughs> I will have that. <laughs> <God bless you. laughs> uh, doctors are they're, they're receiving a lot better education on the subject of death and dying than they were 20-something years ago. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, just as you said, they, they remain in that very sensitive position of healers. And yes. um, you know, in, especially in Western culture, we see death as failure. Yes, yes. Uh, and again, that's where I really believe in that open to options process. It starts the discussion that many times doctors are relieved that the patient brought it up, um, and now they've got this structured forum to have a really frank discussion. Yeah, yeah. I, I know sometimes, Charlie, you use the, uh, a, a phrase or a term, being with dying. What does that mean? Joan Halifax wrote a beautiful book uh, on being with dying, and she's a a spiritual person who's done a lot of work um, out in California and and other places. She and Ira Byock have, have probably done some of the most important work, and it just means being comfortable and being accepting of that person's process. Um, of their end-of-life process, uh, just being present. Um, one of the things that physicians, that, that I, I think physicians can say um, is, I, will, I am still going to be your doctor throughout your illness. That, that really goes a long way for fearful patients, and that's their way of saying, you know, I'm going to be with, with your dying. Uh, Ira Biot views that is the final stage of survivorship. And he talks a lot about that in some beautiful books that he wrote, uh, The Four Things That Matter Most, Dying Well. He does a beautiful job of educating other physicians on this. So so, so talk, uh, talk a little bit, Charlie, about, you know, if you're talking to a patient who calls you and they say, I'm, I'm done, I don't want it. I don't want any more treatment, but I don't. I don't know how to tell my family. I can't find the right words. I remember talking to a patient in Philadelphia, and he was, um, he had lung cancer, and he, you know, he had been through it. He tried everything. He had, I mean, lung cancer. He had lived almost three years. He was on seven different treatments over three years, which was, you know, this was a number of years ago, which is pretty good rate for lung cancer at the time, and. Um, you know, and he said, the reason I didn't want to tell my wife is because I was afraid she would, she would think I was giving up, giving up on her, you know, giving up on the family. And he said, once I, once I convinced her I wasn't giving up, I was just sort of letting go. You know, once I could figure out the way to tell her that didn't seem like I was giving up, it, it seemed to go, you know, a little bit better. But what, what do you advise patients when they're trying to find the right words to talk to their family about this? Because sometimes you're right, it is the family that's fighting so hard and they, you know, they don't want to lose the patient. They don't want to lose the family member. They don't want to lose their loved one. And sometimes they can't see that the patient is just ready to go. There's a real, a real barrier there. Um, I've lived it, so I understand it more now since September 3rd, uh, losing my own father. 
than I ever got it before. And I I can tell you from experience that um, asking, maybe asking your loved ones, the very same thing that I see doctors and, and I myself have asked patients, what scares you the most about me letting go? Let's talk about what scares you the most. And maybe this is the only time we ever talk about it, but let's talk about it on Sunday at 1. And then if you don't ever want to talk about it again, we won't. But please, can we talk about it Sunday at 1? What what scares you the most? And then addressing all of those fears. Are there, are there steps that can make that process easier, Charlie? Like the maybe the patient thinking about their legacy or... Um, I, I know like a lot of families that you know, the patient wants to write stories or notes. They want to make a video. They want to think about their, their legacy. Um, are there steps, act, activities, actions that can make it easier? There are, and there is a legacy project out there. And, and we, we will definitely, um, when, when, this, um, when we pull all this up, uh, I've got a lot of really good resources um, out there that we'll be able to put on the website that talk about how to leave a legacy and why that's important and and why that becomes a part of the process of of letting go. Um, you know, when patients and family members differ in in their opinion of what's best for them, um, it, it can be life-changing when they start hearing each other. And, again, sometimes that has to be facilitated by a third party, uh, those opening up those lines of communication. Uh, a third party needs to come into that discussion. Yeah. Charlie, we're getting close to our, our next break here, but I was I was telling you on the break about some of my uh, some of my travels, and I, I have to tell you when I first came to work at this organization, I was I was uh, kind of a kid, and one of the things I kept hearing patients say was that cancer was a wake up call to them, and 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 I I kept saying to myself, oh my gosh, it's like motivating me to really live my life and do all the things that I want to do. Is that something that you've you've witnessed in your time? in this work is, you know, really, you got to make those, those choices and decisions. It does. And it, it certainly, I can't tell you how many times I, I jump off the call line at the end of my shift and I look at my husband and I say, I have no problems. Mm-hmm. Um, because cancer is a wake up call and, and, and ending treatment. Um, it, it can be something that can really pull a family together. It doesn't have to pull the family apart and culturally, mm-hmm. Westerners have a long, long, long way to go in yep. viewing end of life, even if end of life is much um, earlier in in your life than than you wanted yeah. it to be. Yeah, yeah. This is frankly speaking about cancer. We're talking about end of life decision making with Charlie Prather. We're going to take a quick break. More to discuss with Charlie. We'll be right back. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Cancer Support Community is proud to be a partner of Magnolia Meals at Home, a new pilot program that aims to help patients by providing nourishing meals to households affected by breast cancer so loved ones can spend more quality time together. This program is currently available in and around two pilot cities, Andover, Massachusetts, and Woodcliffe Lake, New Jersey. Participants will receive one delivery of meals every month for up to six months when enrolled in the program. 
Each delivery includes up to seven meals designed to help meet the nutritional needs of people living with breast cancer and 10 meals for family members. This novel program is brought to you by the Azi Women's Oncology Program, Magnolia. Cancer Care, the Cancer Support Community, and Meals on Wheels Association of America. To find out if you or loved ones are eligible, visit online at www.magnoliamealsathome.com or call 617-733-5848. Hi, I'm Nick Nicolaitis, President and CEO of Morphotech, and we're delighted to be a sponsor of Cancer Support Community's Frankly Speaking About Cancer series. Morphotech and its parent company, Azi, are committed to human health care, and we recognize that patients and their families are the most important participants in the health care process. We salute our global advocacy partners who are devoted to improving the lives of people touched by cancer every day. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. The Cancer Support Community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, the Cancer Support Community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-9355 or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community a global network of education and hope. A healthy dialogue for your lifestyle. Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. We're back with Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Today's show is sponsored by Bristol-Myers Squibb. We're closing today's show with Charlie Prather, a cancer support community helpline counselor and a licensed social worker. Charlie, I want to start this segment off with a question about clinical trials. If a patient is on hospice care and a clinical trial becomes available that could help them, can the patient be eligible to participate in the trial? Well, Patients with cancer and their doctors face a a bit of a conflict when there's um, not a known treatment left because Medicare and other insurers don't allow clinical trial participation in hospice care to occur at the same time. Now, I, I know that sounds a little bit complicated, but that being said, I've certainly seen patients opt out of hospice if a trial is presented that may help them live longer. And um, there's a very common misconception that once you enter into hospice that you're there and you can't get out, and it is as simple as verbally saying, I'm opting out of hospice and then following up later with a signature and moving into that clinical trial. Interesting, interesting. Um, Charlie, I want to make sure, as we move towards the end of the show today, that um, we do provide our listeners with some resources, uh, tips, support. I'm going to tell folks if they are listening right now to grab that, grab that pen and pen and paper. 
um, or pull out that computer or that that iPad um, because I do think it's important. I know a lot of folks listen to our show for real live tips, resources, websites, lists, things like that that they can you know access in real time. And um, you know, before we get too close to the end of the show, I want to make sure we have some time, Charlie, to guide our listeners to. Uh, to some of those resources today. And, you know, we'll have a chance to continue to guide folks to that. I know you, for example, talked about something called Five Wishes. Talk to us, Charlie, a little bit about some of the resources that you mentioned on the show, other resources that you can direct our listeners to and where they might be able to find some of these resources to help them with their planning. Um, I really like for Five Wishes, agingwithdignity.org. Uh, that's a really good one. There's a lot of uh, information on that one with Ira Bioc. The conversationproject.org is another very good one. Um, hospicenet.org has a lot of really great information, as well as can- canceradvocacy.org. That has a dying well download that I print off many, many times for, for patients. CaringConnectionsOnline.org has a fantastic printout. It's called Ask Tough Questions that just absolutely bullet points every question you should ask your doctor. And then following up with an open to options uh, discussion with one of our call center counselors or stopping in at one of our affiliates across the country um, with that question list so that you can even fine-tune even more the questions that you've downloaded um, online or had one of these organizations send, send you uh, through the mail. Um, hospicefoundation.org, NHPCO, which is the, no- the National Hospice and Palliative Care Organization, is also very, very good, as well as caringinfo.org. All of these have really great downloadable things that you can print out or you can call their 800 number and have them sent to you. Yeah, I just want to mention our number, uh, the Cancer Support Community Helpline. Charlie, if folks are listening right now, um, they can certainly pick up the phone and call any of our wonderful helpline counselors, including you, uh, at 888-793-9355. Again, that's 888 888- Seven nine three nine three five five. That helpline is available for anybody impacted by cancer or any stage of disease. If you've just been diagnosed, if you're dealing with end-of-life issues, if you're a caregiver, a loved one, a support person, you can call right now and speak to uh, speak to our helpline counselors. If you're looking for uh, one of our centers around the country, if you're looking for a support group, if you're dealing with financial challenges, if you're looking for some tools to talk to your kids about cancer. We have a whole host of free resources for folks. I want to encourage folks to uh, to take advantage of those resources. Also, many of the resources that Charlie uh, has mentioned today, uh, all of those resources are also available and listed um, uh, listed on our website. Charlie, um, advice, tips for patients if they've uh, if they're dealing with these end of life issues with a difficult diagnosis, if they're trying to make some of these end-of-life decisions, do I continue with treatment? Do I end treatment? How do I talk to my doctor? How do I talk to my family? Give us some thoughts and and tips, some, some closing words of wisdom here. If you need help starting the discussion, call us or ask the oncology social worker to help you have that discussion. 
Um, for caregivers, meet your loved one where they are, not where you are. There's a lot of guilt and pain when you are facing with the decision to stop treatment for the patient. A lot of guilt, a lot of pain. They don't need more guilt and pain. So hear them. Let them, let them talk about it. Um, allow them to tell you where they are. And, um, you know, for, for families, if you feel like your medical team is not addressing the possibility of that, um, certainly call us about Open to Options so we can help you with a question list so that you can start that discussion. Stopping treatment or uh, thinking about stopping treatment should always be talked about as really earlier rather than later, and it should always be offered, which is all the more reason to, to, to start these discussions earlier just as a, well, what if this scenario happens? That way the doctor has already, and some of your family members, they've already become comfortable with that, um, you know, with, with that realm of conversation. And then, and then just again, Charlie, because I know it comes up a lot, if the patient's goals are different than what the family wants. And I know that can cause some tension, that can cause some uncomfortable moments. Just quickly, how, you know, how do you start to kind of get some resolution there? Well, um, there have been times when I have asked uh, a chaplain to intervene from, mm. from the family. If, if, if mm-hmm. a family has a faith base, Mm-hmm. And there is a um, a minister or a priest or a monk or a rabbi who already knows the family. I will many many times bring them into that conversation mm-hmm. uh, because they can be that neutral third party, um, especially if they already know the family. If that's not your family's um, mm-hmm. orientation, culture, yeah, yeah. You know, right, exactly. To do that, yeah. then. Again, that third party is important, uh, and that means someone from that medical team, someone from mm-hmm. that medical team, even getting a consult from palliative care. Um, mm-hmm. There's nothing wrong with just asking questions. Get the consult. Of course, our family did mm-hmm. that first because my mother wasn't ready. So it was just mm-hmm. a consult, that's all. There was no, no right. paperwork involved. Just no commitment, no. No, just yeah. education, education, yeah. education. I think that's great advice. This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I want to thank you, Charlie, for joining us on the show today. It's been very uh, educational and, and, again, difficult things for people to think about, but you've really helped us uh, with some good uh, good tips and advice for how to think through this. Thank you for listening today. Again, please take advantage of this, the, the free services that we have at the Cancer Support Community. Visit us at cancersupportcommunity.org or call our toll-free helpline at 888 793 9355. We'd love to hear from you. Thank you for listening today. This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I'm Kim Tebaldo. Until next time, be well, do well, live well. Thank you for joining us for Frankly Speaking About Cancer with your host, Kim Tibaldo. We're here for you every Tuesday afternoon at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. In the meantime, stay connected online at cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. <music>